This Can Do Podcast is brought to you by Blake Albina Thoroughbred Services. Blake Albina is a full-service bloodstock agency and consignment company representing clients at every major horse sale in the country. For more information, call Ron Blake at 859-396-4836 or Hunsley Albina at 859-621-0800. Whether an experienced owner or a newcomer to the game, Blake Albina has the knowledge and experience to help you achieve your goals in the thoroughbred industry. I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the web is clear, can do. Last week, we began our discussion with Jennifer Kelly, author of the fascinating book, Sir Barton and the Making of the Triple Crown. We left off with the approaching match race between the Derby Preakness Belmont hero and legend in the making, Man of War. In this episode, Jennifer and I continued our discussion, talking about the outcome of the match race, not only for Sir Barton, whose post-racing career took some unusual, in these days virtually unknown turns, but also for the colorful cast of characters who comprised his connections. We also spent some time talking about Jennifer's next project, which I think will be an equally enchanting recollection of more of the past glories of our great sport. But on to the second part of our interview. After all the build-up and pre-race hype, the match race, unfortunately, ended up being a bit anticlimactic. Unfortunately, you know, you, you know, you talked about Sir Barton's precarious physical condition and, and the soft twos, and and how the racing schedule at times would take it out of him. Um, it, 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 the race was over pretty quickly, right? I mean, um, it was not uh, yeah real competitive, unfortunately, for Sir Barton. It was not. He he uh, took the lead for maybe a couple hundred feet <laughs> at the very start of the race, but. They were realistic the whole time about his chances. I mean, they, they had no illusions about it. I mean, I know they hoped that they could win, but Mano War was a year younger. He was more sound. He was taller. <laughs> he had a longer stride. So there are a lot of things stacked against for Barton from the start, not to mention the fact that he had spent the last, like, you know, several weeks prior to that, running in a series of, you know, distance races and, and was not 100% healthy. And once, and, you know, Commander Roth even said, like, well, I wouldn't run him if I didn't think he was racing sound. Like, well, being racing sound and being completely healthy are not the same thing. Mm, right. And so, you know, I have, like, secondhand, thirdhand knowledge from other people that confirm that he was, you know, not 100% when he went into the match race. But Commander Ross was a gentleman, he was a sportsman, and he was not going to back out. And that's just, there. It, it was all stacked against for Barton from the very beginning, but, you know, it was that sort of like, you know, you're racing towards something that you know is not going to be what you thought it would be, but you can't stop it from happening. (laughs) Its outcome, however, did not change the sporting nature expected of the patrons of the turf at the time, a nature that seemed to be part and parcel of Commander Ross's makeup from the very first. I have to say, one of the things I was really struck by, um, you know, you talked about throughout the book how Commander Ross was really a sportsman, and I think he showed that more than ever after the defeat, which had to be galling, and yet he was more than gracious, I would say, in in defeat, right? I think he was realistic about his chances from the get-go, but being okay. the commiserate gentleman that he was, and, you know, Commander Ross, 
from what I've read of him, seemed to have a pretty effervescent personality. And it took quite a bit to get him to not show this ebullience at all times. So he was not going to... This happens, you will meet people like this all the time, especially people here in the spotlight, who are almost impervious to, you know, um, negativity or to some sort of, you know, uh, I, I'm, the word has eluded me, to any sort of, you know, change in luck. Like, mm-hmm. almost to the mm-hmm. end, when he lost all of his money, <laughs> and he did, right. he lost all of his money, Right, he was right. almost generous to a fault because, you know, he didn't see any other way to be. So whatever he felt like in private, he was not going to share that in public. So, of course, in public, he's going to be, you know, on the up and up and with, you know, Mr. Riddle and everyone else. I mean, I think he had to have been realistic about his chances. Because, I mean, I think that's why people didn't run against Manowar. I mean, that's why, you know, you had, you know, races where he, you know, they would have to enter a horse at the last minute because nobody else showed up. Because they, I mean, everyone's like, they were realist about it, you know. That's why they had to retire him. I mean, at some point, you just run out of competition. So, I Commander Ross did a fabulous job of being put in a really difficult position. It, he was just tremendously disappointed, I imagine, you know, and especially given that this is Canada and this is his horse and, you know, he had, he had shown such tremendous faith in the horse to begin with. He's like, you know, I've been to a racetrack and who knows, 20 years or more. But unfortunately, sometimes fame... Fortune, glamour, and riches are all too fleeting. And in many ways, their moments in the spotlight were just that. Moments for Sir Barton and his team. And But then, of course, the match race is also the unraveling of everything. So he couldn't have known at that particular moment just how badly everything would unravel. But You know, the team around Sir Barton, whether it's Commander Ross or, or H.G. Bedwell, Earl Sand, Johnny Loftus, Cal Schilling, they they really had mixed success, really. I, I mean, uh, and some of them just ended up kind of fading into obscurity uh, post the the Sir Barton run, right? Yeah, it, it it's interesting how it happens. It's a lot of like you wonder how much of it is just circumstance, how much of it is some you know their responsibility. But you know, H. C. Bedwell. You know, upon realizing that he was not going to get anything out of the match race, had tacitly spoken to Samuel Riddle and Louis uh, Fusel about getting some sort of compensation from them. I don't know how he thought that was going to work. And because of that, the Jockey Club got wind of this via Fusel, and they subsequently tabled H.T. Bedwell's application for a license for 1921 mm. which also is you know played into by Cal Schilling and Cal Schilling in his eternal quest to get his jockey license back which the jockey club was not going to let him do and you know Cal, Cal Schilling you know just basically after you know everything with Sir Barton just kind of fell off the map and would periodically re-emerge for nef- not nefarious but for unfortunate things 
like getting arrested for public drunkenness and then thrown in the clink. And that's when they find out that he's Cal Schilling, who has won the Derby in 1912. <laughs> it's like, yeah. where has he been? He, well, he's, he's basically been, you know, the working poor, just going from racetrack to racetrack. Um, Earl Sandy, you know, after being replaced, left Commander Ross's employ and went to Sam Hildreth and rode Zev versus Papyrus. But then in like the mid 20s, got in a very serious spill that almost kept him from going back to riding altogether. Fortunately, recovered, lost his wife in 1927. Mm hmm. Then lost all of his money because he tried to take a stab at training and owning horses and turned out that that is a very expensive proposition. Had to go back to riding and ended up riding Gallant Fox and the Triple Crown, but then retired two years after that. And, you know, his story just turns out, I mean, he just basically, he, he realized that racing is a rich man's game, and if he wasn't riding, he probably wasn't going to succeed at it. So he, But he kept taking a stab at, you know, doing it out of the saddle and ended up losing all his money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, it's just such a, his pride just kept him from doing so many things. And then, like, Johnny Loftus, I think, was so just tremendously disappointed in how things turned out that he eventually just fell out of racing altogether. He lost his jockey license, became a trainer for a while with some, you know, fair success. And then after that kind of petered out, he was a civilian and I think they caught up to him in like the sixties and he's like, you know, I've been to a racetrack and who knows, 20 years or more. Mm. And he was a carpenter. <laughs> um, <laughs> Who ended up, you know, out in California living with his daughter, and then like AC Bedwell, he he was the one that somehow managed to dig himself out of the hole he created for himself, and kept training even though he was not allowed to, you know, race in New mm -hmm. York, and somehow ended up continuing to find clients, and including his own horses, of course. But I'm I'm about to write about Ralph Parr who uh, was a, a long-time owner in Maryland, and Ralph Parr was one of H.G. Bedwell's clients, you know, in the mm -hmm. 30s. And, and you know, Ralph Parr had owned uh, Paul Jones, the 1920 Kentucky Derby winner. So it's just, Bedwell just kind of made, you know, he just, he, like, did what he always did. He just found a way to survive until, <laughs> until things blew over, and then he could go back. And Commander Ross just, you know, spent all his money. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. no other way around it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, whether it was racing or just philanthropy or just being extravagant, he he he, he burned through it, didn't he? He did. He had, he had inherited $16 million, which oh my gosh. in 19... 13, I believe, was the equivalent of more than $100 million today. And between um, trying to live like a Vanderbilt and owning resources, like he was a Whitney, and <laughs> being um, extravagantly philanthropic, which is always a good thing, but, you know, it's, it depends on how, how much philanthropy you can yeah, you know, afford. Yeah, you father had been Yeah. His father had been very philanthropic as well, um, but also Ross had made some ill-advised um, investments in the 20s, like in 
oil and some other things where he, rather than being smart in, in investigating who he was on board with, he basically signed blank texts to people. And then when the investment didn't peter out, he just, he was just out that money. And, you know, his wife divorced him and, and I think the only thing that same plan was a trust fund that somehow magically eluded his, um, Oh, wow. Okay. His hand. Yeah, yeah. And so he, he lived the remainder of his life after he was divorced and declared bankruptcy, moved to Jamaica, of all places. <laughs> Interesting, yeah. And yeah. married again in Jamaica and then lit, built an estate on Montego Bay and lived his life, at, you know, on $50,000 a year. Not a, not, a bad way to, not a bad way to go, I guess, right? But, you know. You, no, I mean, yeah. he lived in Jamaica, minimal, you know, cost of living, and, you know, he managed to build that estate, which apparently still exists. I haven't been able oh, to find wow. pictures okay. of it, but oh, it still exists. Cool. Yeah. Okay. And, um, you know, and he died um, in 1951, and I think um, I think he and H.C. Bedwell died about the same time. And then um, uh, Johnny Loftus died in 76. Um, Earl Sandy died in like 1968, and Cal Schilling died, <laughs> penniless, and yeah, apparently, yeah. Yeah. oh my gosh, like they just found his body frozen to death at Belmont Park in a parking lot, and it was just and this was before you had like something like the PDJF or other sorts of you know support systems that people can depend on where that we have now, so. For those of us in the OK Boomer generation, the notion of a horse-drawn cavalry, while not a thing in our generation, was near enough so as not to be a foreign concept. But I have to say it never dawned on me how such a team might be populated. Until I spoke with Jennifer about Sir Barton's brief stay in the breeding shed at Ardley Farm and his long breeding stint out west. Where, as it turns out, more than one famous horse found their final resting place. Yeah, the remount service is something I think for most of us is, I, most people are like, what is the remount service? So I don't think people were aware that we had a mounted cavalry well into World War II. And that when there's a book that I read not too long ago about the, um, the Arabians and the Lipizzaners in World War II, and the cavalry from the United States has a tacit connection to that because they helped rescue some of the horses that were involved in the book. But by this point, they were not mounted cavalry. They were mechanized cavalry. So sometime during right before World War II or during World War II, the military um, mechanized the cavalry and did away with <laughs> the cavalry program altogether. But prior to that, because of a shortage of mounted cavalry in uh, World War One, the United States had started taking steps to build up the number of cavalry mounts that were available to military personnel. Mm -hmm. So in order to do that, they instituted the remount service, which basically would take, you know, thoroughbred sires, usually thoroughbred sires, and they would assign them to people, usually, you know, breeders in the field. And then for a minimal cost, a, an average person can bring their mare and have the mayor covered by whatever stallion. And then the, I think the military had the option of purchasing the foal that resulted from the cover. I think that's how it worked. It's, it's hard to discern because you get a lot, there's a lot of information out there and it, 
it's not always clear how it works necessarily. Mm-hmm. So uh, apparently after Sir Barton had run out his use at Oddly, um, they had decided to turn him over to the remount service, which at the time was a you know viable um, alternative mm-hmm. for thoroughbred stallions. So, cause, and Sir Barton's not the only derby winner that ended up in the remount service. Oh, really? I mean, behave yourself. Okay. Um, okay. Ended up in the remount as well. So there's other thoroughbred stallions that are notable that ended up in the remount service. But um, Sir Barton's probably the most notable, and he even appears in Turf and Sport Digest in the 30s as um, in an article about the remount service and like here's her Barton and he's you know in the remount and they talk about um mate your mare with the derby winner for five or ten dollars <laughs> oh my you gosh know, which yeah. Sounds, yeah to us yeah. It sounds like a tragedy like he he was five hundred to a thousand dollars a cover at the at his height and now he's being <laughs> you know he's yeah. in the remount and he it's only five or ten dollars but really he was doing a service Right. Because he was, you know, you could bring your Morgan or your quarter horse mare in and have her covered by the thoroughbred, and then you get what, in their eyes, was the, you know, perfect mix of bloodlines to create a hardy yet speedy, mm. you know, cavalry mount. So... And that's what he did. And he ended up in okay. Wyoming because he, um, the agent that he ended up with was uh, Dr. Hilton out in Douglas, Wyoming. Dr. Hilton was a longtime remount agent and member of the Democratic Party and stuff like that. And he was a prominent person out in Wyoming in this era. And he ended up with Sir Barton. I don't know the mechanism because a lot of the records kind of are, have been disposed of and are inaccessible now. But he apparently ended up with Sir Barton, was only supposed to have him for a season, but requested to keep the stallion because I guess they were enjoying having him or he was attracting a lot of attention. I'm not really sure. But they kept him for the remainder of his life. So I think he he entered the remount in late 1932, but I don't have substantial records that definitively pinpoint that date. That's just like... You know, circumstantial evidence says the fall of 1932. And then by early 1933, he had been transferred out west and then had made his way to Wyoming where he remained until he died in 1937. Yeah, yes, the trivia question is interesting. You know, which trivia question, which, which derby winner is buried on a Wyoming mountainside? You know, which which triple crown winner, right, is buried on a Wyoming yeah. mountainside? Yeah. Well, um, I found out this week the Foolish Pleasure is also buried out in Wyoming. No kidding, really? I had no idea, but found out through someone who is currently traveling out west that he's like, you know, he went to Douglas and visited Sir Barton, and he said, oh, by the way, did you know that Foolish Pleasure is also buried out this direction? And I said, no, I did not. <laughs> and it turns out he is. He is buried out in Dayton, Wyoming, on a ranch, a private, oh a privately owned ranch. Jennifer is, as you can tell, enamored of the history of our sport and intent on bringing this sport's redolent past to light in such a way as to light the way for its future. We talked about her next project, 
the lesser-known, less glamorous part of being an author, the passions that drive any author, and the particular passions that drive Jennifer every day. You mentioned you're working on your next book now about the uh, Bel Air Stud, which sounds fascinating, too. Yeah, I'm working on um, specifically Gallant Fox in Omaha. Okay. And I wish I could do Bel Air Stud. It has such a rich and deep like career, uh, you know, as a breeder, um, Kimberly Gatto did a book on Bel Air Studs several years ago. Okay. Which you can find from the history press. And it's a, it's a good, um, exploration of the history. I've got a couple of books that are about the history of the estate itself okay. and not necessarily yep. the Woodward family. So one of the things about doing Gallant Fox in Omaha, it was the same as um, the impetus behind Sir Barton, which was there's information out there, but it's not, con- you know, consolidated into a single book. So when you are new to horse racing, or if you're, you know, a longtime fan, but you want to explore the history of the sport, you know, you find gaps in <laughs> in certain areas where it's like these stories for some reason have not been told. And so, with the Triple Crown winners, since that's kind of what I cut my teeth on, it was, I would love to go back and make sure that every Triple Crown winner um, has a book. Yeah, and so, yeah. you, you start going mm-hmm. through the catalog, and if you spend an hour on Amazon, you know, you can find books on um Secretariat, there's probably a good half dozen you or so. You can find many, many books about him, yeah. Yep. And yep. then, you know, books on American Pharaoh, even um, Lenny's book on, Lenny Shulman's book on Justify. There's a out-of-print book on Wallaway called Here Comes Wallaway, which you can find on the second-hand market. There's a book on Citation. Um, I know at one, you know at some point, I know the Third Red Legends has a book on War Admiral, but I kept finding places like there's a book on assault, but not a, you know, long in-depth discussion okay. of assault oh, career. So there's that, there count fleet. There's really not a, a long you know, in-depth um, discussion of count fleet and his career, which mm. was brief, but you know, it, it's like, well, he, he never ran again after the Belmont, but it's not like, you know, that just gives you the impression that, well, you know, he won the Triple Crown, and that was it. It's like, no, they, they tried after that to get Count Fleet back to the races. He just never was healthy enough to race. So with Gallant Fox in Omaha, it was it was like I was I had finished Sir Barton, and we were, um, my fellowship's like, what are you working on next? And I was <laughs> like sitting there going, yeah. Yeah. like, that's a really good question. <laughs> what am I going to do next? And uh, I... I really wanted to do Gallant Fox in Omaha because they are, I mean, obviously connected. Gallant Fox hired Omaha. They're owned by the same man, bred by the same man, um, both bred by um, William Woodward, but fold at Claiborne Farm. And so there's a lot of um, threads in Gallant Fox in Omaha's story that are relevant today because you have this legacy of Claiborne Farm still you know, leading, one of the leading breeders in the industry. You have the bloodline of Omaha through Majinski II. If you go back through Majinski II's um, pedigree, he has Omaha in there through, on his dam's side. And then, uh, and I'm trying to think of, 
it, there was just a lot of things about Gallant Park to Omaha that felt like there was a story there that really hadn't been told. It's like, okay, well, you know, we know that one side or the other, and they both win a triple crown, and that's about as much as you know. <laughs> yeah. So sometime next year we can look forward to the Gallon Fox in uh, Omaha, the, the, the Foxes of Bel Air. Well. Yes, no. Uh, I know I know the process takes a long time. Okay, so I'm going to shoot for, and I'm probably going to regret giving a date, but. We're <laughs> we can edit. We can edit it out if need be. <laughs> 2023 is the the date that I'm aiming for. So the thing about publishing a book, and I don't know how much time you have, but the thing about publishing a book is that once you submit the manuscript, it takes about a year to get a book out. So, and it's not necessarily because the writer is dragging their feet. It's because there's a, a series of processes that you have to go through. And like, um, I, I submitted the manuscript for Sir Barton in, at the end of March of 2018, and the book came out at the end of March 2019. <laughs> because it literally, it, I, I was literally working on the book in some way, shape, or form up until about Christmas mm -hmm. of 2018. So whether it was proofreading the manuscript or um, reconciling the copy editor's questions about um, sources or about, um, you know, factual information or whatever. Or uh, I had to do the index, which if you've never done an index. Oh, you have to do that. Yeah, I had to do okay. that. Oh, and, oh wow. And I was like, I regret every choice I've ever made in my life because I'm having to do the index. And then I... <laughs> It's like, oh, my gosh. And then, um, so Barton ended up being about 95,000 words, and I had to mm -hmm. submit every chapter as a separate file. And so it's like, collect all the files with all the information you need, and then submit all of it, plus photographs, plus the permission forms for the photographs. And, you know, there's just long list of things and then you don't and then you don't touch it for several months because the publisher is preparing the manuscript they're touching it and yeah then you, yeah, get, you yeah. get it back from the copy editor who is you know has all these questions about things and you have to reconcile those and then um i i want to have gallant fox out faster but it's just <laughs> it's a process it's a process yeah yeah <laughs> we'll we'll look forward to to that book as well. I I just want to encourage anyone that you know loves the history of the sport to to pick up Sir Barton because it's a it's it's really a fascinating look back at the at the horse and the times and and you know we didn't even get a chance to talk about some of the other names Preston Madden and others that are sprinkled in. Oh my gosh! Throughout there, you yeah. know, uh, it's a terrific read, and I'm sure well, Gallant Fox in Omaha will be too. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. I. I put a lot of love into Sir Barton because I, when I decided to do the book, it was, I, I felt like he was an underserved um, horse that had, and I even found an article that Brantley Rice had written in 1930 when he was covering um, a Gallant Fox's campaign where he referred to Sir Barton as, you know, he would have been a more famous horse had Man of War not come along <laughs> and basically <laughs> yeah. sucked all of the fame out yeah. of everything. And it's like, you know, by the time I arrived at the decision to actually work on the book and to start the research, I, it felt like an under, 
you know, explored area. And, and I, I imagine it's because it's such a far distant time period from what we are currently living in. Yeah. And, you know, mm. not to mention that it's challenging to find new information in the first place, just depending on what the topic is. So it's a, it was, it became a passion project for me just to be his advocate, if nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a good way to put it too, his advocate. And, and, uh, like I said, anyone that's interested in the history of sport, I think in history in general, really, I mean, I, I know yeah. people that read like, you know, like, like a Seabiscuit and they were like, oh my gosh, I learned so much. And I think it's the same experience here. You know, even if you're not oh, a horse racing you. fan, there's, there's <laughs> just great stuff in there, you know, what the world was like and how different the world was. Yes. And just, it, I, to me, it's mind blowing that at, when Commander Ross had to leave Louisville and wasn't present for the Derby that he couldn't listen to it on the radio. You know, he couldn't, he couldn't, he knew he, he, knew he couldn't watch it on television, mm-hmm. but the fact that he couldn't even listen to it on the radio because the earliest radio broadcasts of the Derby were still a good, like four or five years away. Wow. Wow. It's just yeah. mind blowing to me. So mm. basically he depended on telephone calls or tell, you know, telegraph or whatever. So, my job, which I, I'm trying to figure out the, the best way to do, is to connect what we know it as in our moment with what has happened in the past, and really, you know, shine a light on the history of the sport so that fans are gratified not just by present day champions right. that they they love and get to watch on television every week, but also by you know, horses in the past that created the traditions that we are so invested in today. I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Jennifer as much as I did. There is so much in her tribute to Sir Barton that informs, educates, and invites reflection. Reflection that I hope inspires all of us to do whatever part we can to ensure a future as bright for this sport as the past that Jennifer so lovingly brings to life. Thank you, Jennifer. You can find Jennifer on Facebook and Twitter. She's a great follow. Thanks to you also for joining us. We'll be back next week with more focus on the history of our sport. In the meantime, as always, may the horse be with you.